Hello, good people. This is Sister Julia Walsh, and you're listening to Messy Jesus Business. Welcome to The Mess. I'm here with Carrie Alice Robinson, who is the Catholic Charities USA president and CEO, and a noted expert in Catholic leadership and philanthropy. For decades, Carrie has served the church and its mission to alleviate human suffering, most recently as an executive partner at Leadership Roundtable, which promotes best practices in the management, finances, and human resource development of the Catholic Church. Her writings include the prize-winning book, Imagining Abundance, Fundraising, Philanthropy, and a Spiritual Call to Service. Carrie's also a wife and mother and a graduate of Yale and Georgetown and a a friend and colleague. Carrie, welcome to Messy Jesus Business. So happy to be here with you, Julia. Thank you for coming on. I know that in the role of administration, to pause for an hour and have a conversation about your life is... (laughs) It's a real generous offering of your time. You've really had quite the career of serving God's people in the church and advocating for justice and accompanying the poor in different ways. How did your journey, your your life, your formation inform that career path and help you to come to know that this was the way you were meant to serve God's people? Well, I certainly would have never predicted any of this. (laughs) And in fact, each time I am invited into a role or a an opportunity for ministry in the church, I always think they have the wrong person and try to talk them out of my candidacy. But I was born to a family that now has an 80-year history of serving the Catholic Church at the local, national, and international level Mm. through the instrument of a private family foundation. So what this means is 80 years ago, our great-grandparents, John and Helena Raskob, pooled their resources, and they set up a private family foundation. And they had two explicit intentions. The first was that all of their resources would be used exclusively to support the Catholic Church, Mm. but they understood that work to be virtually anything under the sun anywhere in the world. Mm. Their second intention was that their children and grandchildren and descendants would be invited when they are teenagers, to serve as volunteers in the work of the foundation. So for five generations of our family now, we have been invited at a very formative age to see the church at its very best all over the globe. And I certainly fell in love with the church through the example of women and men ordained religious and lay who bore witness to the worst of what humankind can do to one another and to our our common home. And yet every day, motivated by their faith, they responded to that suffering by alleviating it, by providing education and healthcare, all manner of social services, advancing justice, championing justice, sowing seeds of peace. And it was curious, Julia, because on the one hand, I understood that they were confronting some of the most dire uh, challenges facing humankind. 
And yet they also seemed to be the most joyful people I had ever met. They had an interior freedom that was enviable and a purpose about them that I found deeply compelling. So even as a child, I would pray, God, I will never be as selfless and holy and dedicated as these moral heroes before me, but maybe you could let me do something with my life behind the scenes that could make a positive contribution to their witness, their ministry, Mm. their lives. And I think that prayer keeps getting answered. (laughs) So that's behind the scenes, but now you're the leader. (laughs) So you're not really behind the scenes, Carrie. I tried. (laughs) (laughs) So you learned something about those witnesses, those people who are living their vocation of serving the poor that you encountered in your youth. What did you discover from their witness about what leadership is? Great question. I definitely learned that true leadership is service. Mm. It is a disposition of other centeredness Uh and a conviction that everything belongs and is interconnected. Mm. I think I learned that early on. And I also learned that if you can take genuine delight in the good fortune of others that you will never be without a reason to celebrate. And that helps mitigate against growing up, comparing yourself to other people. Hmm. I think it mitigates against envy or jealousy and really does from a young age, help shape you to be other-centered and to take genuine delight in other people. And in the context of faith, that's that's loving children of God. It's, yeah. it's loving what God loves, each other, our common home, all of creation. You know, as you say that, my wheels are kind of going in my in my brain here because I'm thinking about <laughs> how it seems like you and I have such different backgrounds, but we've arrived in a very similar space because what you're talking about is where my own faith journey has brought me as I've matured. I would say that I grew up closer to poverty than wealth and <laughs> there's a lot of things I never would have imagined that later be- became my experience. I think what I'm conscious of is the gap between the classes and how within the Catholic Church, there's such a wide range of who is wealthy and who is poor. And the reign of God that I imagine when I pray with Scripture is a reign of equity and justice. What have you discovered in your journey about what that means and how to promote that and to bridge those gaps. One of the reasons that I am Catholic and remain Catholic and sort of am inescapably Catholic is the gift of Catholic social teaching because that allowed for life to, to make sense intellectually and honestly, I think that is such a gift that that our our church has given the world. It's helped inform international human rights and a sense of responsibility between peoples. 
And I studied that at Yale Divinity School as in depth as I could possibly mm-hmm. could possibly do. That led me to work on behalf of Catholic Campaign for Human Development. And I know that you and I got to celebrate mm-hmm. uh, an important anniversary of CCHD together. That work also helped me make sense of faith in action. Mm-hmm. And now, of course, I'm working with Catholic Charities USA. I've had long conversations over the years about the relationship of charity and justice, and obviously both are always needed. I sometimes worry that we think about a hierarchy of goods when, in fact, there's so much need and so much to be done in the world that we should be encouraging people to make the difference where they are in the areas that they care most deeply about so that they can have the best impact yeah. on others and, and not see it so much as a competition. Yeah. But certainly the relationship of charity and justice is crucial and I think is embedded in Catholic social teaching as well as in the gospel itself. Yeah. What's the difference? I mean, I would say quite simply, if someone is before you and in need, Mm -hmm. suffering in some way, charity is alleviating that need in the moment, feeding the hungry child, offering safe shelter to the migrant family. Mm -hmm. Justice is asking the question, why are children hungry in our world to begin with? And what can we do to remedy that so that children are not hungry? Yeah. And so then once you start to answer those questions, you start to notice the injustices that need to be confronted, and that invites the advocacy and the work of social change. I mean, the example of hunger, (laughs) I'm thinking about how I'm from a farming community family, and my sister has worked closely in the food industry for her whole career. And she's emphasizes a lot that there's more than enough food to feed everyone. The problem is really about distribution. And that's a situation of injustice, which seems to connect closely to the work that Catholic Charities is doing, which is a lot of wealth redistribution, where you're helping people have their basic needs met, help providing the food, the, the shelter, the clothing, right? And relying on the generous donations of other people to do that work. So we want people to be generous and to respond. And at the same time, we don't want the systems to be broken that this is the need in the first place. <laughs> so there's like this this real tension that you're having to live in, aren't you, in your work? Yes. And this is a great point, talking about hunger and food insecurity. We recently at Catholic Charities surveyed all 168 diocesan local Catholic Charities agencies that comprise the national network. And to our astonishment, 49% of everything we collectively do is in the space of providing food to hungry people. Mm. 49%. Mm. That is a staggering amount of work and activity and hungry people. 
At the same time, at the national office, we are able to advocate, and that's where the justice work mm. comes into play. We advocate for, for example, the child tax credit, mm. which lifted so many children out of poverty. What a huge success. And we, it felt like we had it so fleetingly. Mm. But having that reestablished is a piece of our advocacy that just makes sense to lift children out of poverty overnight with that policy change. Yeah. Um, so we need to get it back. One of the things that I admire about Catholic Charities is that it is always doing both. It is providing basic care to people who are suffering. This could be because of chronic unemployment, because of injustices that exist in our society. It could be because a tornado just mm. whipped through your town and you are now without a home. Yeah. A lot of our work is also in just basic disaster relief. And that always makes me think any one of us can find ourselves. I think we are, you know, a few hundred dollars away from finding ourselves in great need. That's so right. this this uh, commitment to being other centered, to caring about our neighbors, to paying attention to human suffering and deprivation and inequality in our communities is critical to this work. Do you feel like a lot of what you're doing is as a person who's a leader in fundraising, really, in promoting philanthropy and inviting people to be more charitable is actually inviting people to detach from possessions and, and to let go and to be more generous. Is that like how you understand your mission? This is what I absolutely know to be true. Generosity is humankind's birthright. Mm. And we are all, all of us are called to be generous. Yeah. And we are called to be catalysts to inspire generosity in others. Mm. That's why we are all both grant makers and grant seekers. Mm. And we all, regardless of our material wealth, we all have something to contribute. I think it is truly one's right to be generous yeah. and we should never take away another person's right to be generous. <laughs> think, think of it today too, in this polarized and often vitriolic world that we live in. You can be generous by extending the benefit of the doubt to someone. Mm -hmm. You can be generous with your time, with your attention with your humility before another's viewpoint or perspective. Mm -hmm. So I think we need a lot more generosity in this world. It's also deeply rewarding. Anyone who has been truly generous knows and claims that they received much more than they gave. Mm -hmm. I think they're right in the middle of that messiness mm -hmm. <laughs> is the meaning of life. As you talk about it that way, I'm reminded how 
<laughs> as a Franciscan sister, my entire adult life has been in the nonprofit world. And I've <laughs> been working in a lot of different types of ministries. And everywhere I go and everything I get connected with, I'm happy to advocate for them or help raise some money or sometimes sponsor grants or, you know, whatever I can do to support the mission. There's something that's interesting to observe, which is like, I don't mind doing that work. It kind of is fun for me to be a beggar <laughs> and, to, and to invite people into the mission and invite people to be generous and give and participate. And I noticed that other people really are uncomfortable with asking for donations and asking for help, asking people to volunteer. I don't know why it comes more comfortably to me, but I suspect that it's partly because I'm a Franciscan. And I also wonder if it's because I grew up in a rural farming community where the culture of the small town is everyone's helping each other. And in many ways, that's like the way I understand the reign of God. We all need to be helping each other out all the time or this is not going to work. We're all called to participate, aren't we? Beautiful. Yes. Yes. I spent a lot of time talking about these themes with my closest friend who was a diocesan priest from the Archdiocese of Hartford. He was a parish priest who loved his ministry and his archbishop appointed him Catholic chaplain at Yale University, mm -hmm. which he resisted and resisted, finally agreed to go and loved it. Mm. He died five years ago. But while he was alive, he and I spent 10 years together working to expand Catholic life on Yale's campus. And I had moved from the philanthropic side of the coin, working on behalf of the Roscoe Foundation and other family foundations, to the fundraising side of that coin, when he asked me to be the director of development of this major Catholic capital campaign at Yale. Mm -hmm. Another thing I totally resisted having had <laughs> no training in it. Right. And what, what was really interesting though, was he and I both knew that we had to raise money in order to bring to fruition a Catholic intellectual and spiritual center of consequence at a great world-class university. Mm. And in so doing, we would raise the bar of Catholic campus ministry across the world. Mm. So money was a piece of that equation, but neither of us knew how to do it. And we were filled with dread and loathing and all kinds of bad, false understandings about fundraising. Mm. And it was only through the actual activity over those 10 years of bringing our faith to bear on this and seeing fundraising as a ministry to others, an invitation to them to be part of this life-giving work rooted in faith, visionary, kind of abundant work yeah. to benefit generations of children not even yet born. It was only in that context that we began to examine our own theological ambivalence about wealth. Is it holy? Is it sinful? Mm. Is it the attachment to it? Is it the allocation of it that is either graceful or sinful? Mm. Those are hard, important questions, and we never got to the bottom of it. Oh, I was ready. I was on the edge of my seat, my friend, <laughs> and, the, and we figured out. <laughs> <laughs> what we did figure out, though, was Calling the question, putting it to prayer, having meaningful conversations yeah. about it 
really matters. Yeah. Otherwise, you will forever bring a cognitive dissonance to the subject of money. And that will show. We want it to be as transparent and vulnerable in our conversations with prospective donors as possible. Mm. And there was a great humility in that as well as it allowed for sacred conversations to take place. Donors are not objects to try to get as much money out of as quickly and painlessly as possible. They are subjects in their own right, just like all of us with hopes, regrets, aspirations, dreams. And once we understood that our prospective donors were subjects in their own right, we could bring our full complement of mm. pastoral engagement to the equation and to the discussion. And that made all the difference in the world. Yeah. You know, what you're talking about there is, is looping back to what you were saying before about being other centered, right? So you're honoring the dignity of the donor, just as you're honoring the dignity of the people who are served by the mission of the thing you're raising money for. I'd love to here, I don't know if you can talk about, like, were you actually doing faith sharing with these folks? Or how did you get into the depth of these big questions with them? And how do you explore those things in your own life? Well, let me tell you a story that illustrates more perfectly than I could ever have imagined how fundraising for faith-based ministries truly can be a ministry itself mm. rather than a job to get a transactional experience. And here's the story. Our lead donor for St. Thomas More, the Catholic chapel and center at Yale University, was Tom Golden. And Tom appeared to us initially as a very, very humble man of modest means. But he had something that no one else at that time had, which was a genuine interest in hearing us talk about our vision for Catholic life at Yale. And he said early in the campaign, I'd like to get involved here. My heart leapt with joy at this. I thought maybe he could help us with mailings. <laughs> you know, we had no staff. It was just the two of us. And it was years before we realized that Tom who had never married, no brothers and sisters, no nieces and nephews, had worked all of his life and had actually amassed quite a lot of wealth. And he was looking for something to do with his life's estate and found us. He said, Father Bob, Carrie, I have confidence that you will be able to raise the full $25 million dollars for the cost of this new Catholic student center on Yale's campus from all the other Yale Catholic alumni. If you are serious and put a shovel in the ground and I get to see the building in my lifetime, I will leave you $25 million in my well <laughs> or 75% or of my estate, whichever is the greater amount at the time of my death. <laughs> and then he said, pray I live a long, long time because each year this corpus increases. <laughs> and of course, he was our friend. We were always going to be praying that he lived a long, long life. Yeah. Flash forward and it is Easter Sunday and Tom drives the hour 
to New Haven to join us for the Easter liturgy. And the chapel is filled to overflowing with students and faculty. The music is outstanding. The homily magnificent. Mm -hmm. Joy is in the air. And Tom is sitting very close to the front with my husband and me. And despite the fact that this is such a joyful, sunny, extravagantly um, wonderful day, Tom is quietly weeping next to me Mm. throughout the entire liturgy, Julia. Mm. And I know what a private, humble man he is. So I don't even draw attention to the fact that I'm aware of his weeping. Mm -hmm. As mass finishes and we are making our way out of the church, I turn to Tom and I thank him for joining us in that sacred place on that sacred day. And I say, Tom, you blessed us with your presence. And he said, Carrie, I probably should not confess this to you, but this is my first mass in over 40 years. Huh. And I just, in that moment, Julia, I knew that if we had not even raised $15 in this whole campaign, at least by the way we comported ourselves in in seeing fundraising as a ministry, in being other-centered, in listening and engaging with prospective donors, at least in the way we comported ourselves, we had reconciled this man with his God and his faith community. And that is such a hauntingly beautiful example of ministry. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for that story. It is a really good illustration of how when we're doing the work of God, sometimes we really think we're about one thing. <laughs> Instead, something else actually is happening. Or there's multiple fruits, right? There's um, a lesson there about humility and openness and surprise, too. One of the words you used earlier was abundant. And I've noticed in my own life of ministry and really my life in community, my life of discipleship, that oftentimes we're confronting a scarcity mindset with folks that gets in the way of a total trust in God and trust in other people. And completely to our detriment. But that's not the gospel. I mean, right? No. Jesus? No. Yeah. <laughs> like, how does Jesus and the faith that you know and love help you to live with the spirituality of abundance. Well, back to my work with Father Bob Boulogne, he and I, early in our work together, discovered we had the same exact favorite line from scripture. Mm. It was our first argument. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that line is John 10, 10. Jesus said, I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Yeah. And when we discovered that we shared that as our favorite line from scripture, we let that inform our work together. Mm. And we tried to start with the end in mind, this center of abundant welcome and hospitality and formation and lavish love Mm. and creativity. 
at open to everyone, you know? It also helped though that I literally would dream of the center that would one day come to fruition. Uh-huh. It's kind of impossible. Like we we didn't even have the land at that point. Mm. But living with a sense of abundance rather than scarcity, the only way I know how to do that is to remember that we as people of faith are called to be confident in the future, that we believe in a lavishly loving God. We have access to transcendence, to meaning, to purpose, and we have a community of believers to hold us accountable, to encourage us, to inspire us, to console us. How can we not be people of abundance? So then is the work of the people of God to create spaces that help people to know that lavish love, to build up sacred spaces of belonging and welcome and hospitality? Yes. And we do that in multiple ways all of the time. Yeah. So you encountered it all around the world in your youth, and now you're leading at Catholic Charities and helping the poorest of the poor in the margins here in the United States to know that the generosity that comes from the reign of God. What is it really like? It's magnificent. Mm. It is beyond my wildest dreams. Mm -hmm. It feels as though my entire life has brought me to this moment and this role. Mm. And I see my role very much as one of serving first my 63 colleagues at the national office. And then collectively, we serve the 168 agencies, which are providing the frontline work. And collectively, the network is serving those who are experiencing all manner of challenges and deprivation and sorrows. Yeah, yeah. It's a wonderful, wonderful conduit. I believe truly, Julia, that the work of charity helps bring integrity and holiness to the church. Mm. And it makes people proud to belong to this country. Mm. It is sort of our country at its very best in responding to the suffering of others. That's how we're measured by how the poorest in our midst fare. We haven't really gone there, but it's also can be politically messy, right? Hugely messy. (laughs) Do you think the people that are working for Catholic charities on the ground in the day to day are dealing with people that are telling them not to be generous because they're judging those who are receiving the gifts that Catholic Charities offers. I think that the Catholic Charities Network, which includes the people who are served, the volunteers, last year alone, there were 215,000 people who volunteered Uh, uh at a local Catholic Charities and all the staff and all the donors, a complex, enormously diverse, theologically and politically group of people. Mm. You would think that feeding a five-year-old hungry child could never be used as a political cudgel, 
but in this climate, it can be. Mm. So there are political opinions and accusations and even sort of false statements thrown at us all of the time from all sides, frankly. Mm. But what I admire about the people who are actually doing the work of feeding the hungry and providing shelter to those without homes and job training for those who are at their wits end, desperately wanting to work, they just show up. It's like my early moral heroes and heroines. They see all of the misery and injustice in the world, but they show up every day and work to ameliorate that. And that there's so much grace and nobility in it. Mm -hmm. And every person who donates or volunteers or actually does this work, they always say the same thing to me, that they are the ones who are benefiting. It's almost like the more we give, the greater our sense of purpose. Our cup is replenished Mm -hmm. the more we give away. I think what you're talking about there is really how the church is meant to be a culture of encuentro, like Pope Francis emphasizes, right? And so we're not just serving for the sake of like, it's the right thing to do, but we're serving because it leads to our own conversion, our own transformation. We have to be encountering the other so that we can be changed and become more holy and more aware of others in the world and what the reality is, right? That makes a lot of sense to me. And and it's beautiful to hear that even though it's complex and there's the diversity and there's the tension and disagreements, like (laughs) ultimately people continue to keep serving and showing up because they know that they're gaining something from it through their own acts of of generosity. And I do believe that it it will be what saves us in the end. It will be what helps us transcend the divisions Mm. among us. I have a friend, Mac McCarter, who founded Community Renewal International and it's predicated on this realization that that God created us to be in relationship with one another, to love one another. And he says all the time, caring alone will not save the world, but caring together will. Mm. And I love that. There is a kind of contagious nature to selflessness, to generosity, to care, to concrete acts of helping someone in distress. Uh, Goodness feeds on itself. Generosity begets generosity. I invite anybody who is listening to your wonderful podcast to think about where in their lives they can be even more generous themselves. Mm. You know, as you say that, I'm thinking about how The reality is we live in a culture and a society where people are so busy and they're so overwhelmed. We do have a level of social consciousness in general, I think, where we're we're aware of the suffering of other people and the planet and all the things that feel like they're in crisis around us. That consciousness can sort of stir up a powerlessness. It can cause us to feel numb or frozen. But you're challenging us to overcome that and just respond locally through simple acts of generosity. And you said earlier, like, it's like picking what we're most passionate about and just working on that, right? And not being competitive about it. 
there's enough need to go around to satisfy everybody's <laughs> particular philanthropic passion or yeah. commitment of time and focus. Yeah, but we all have to do something. Yes. And, yes. and none of us can stand alone and none of us can <laughs> be for us. Like we actually all have to participate here or it's not going to work. Right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, the ultimate sharing of gifts. Mm. So there's been a lot of goodness that we've explored here, but I'd love to hear in all this work that you're doing, the ways that you're leading and promoting the reign of God and supporting those who are serving the poor and on the front lines. What have you learned personally about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? One thing that I have had for many, many years now as a practice, we're always, of course, encouraged to pray. Mm-hmm. And what does that really mean? And some of us don't think we do it very well or whatever. Mm-hmm. I have had this commitment to two things in my prayer life. One is praying in times of great joy and praying when I am especially grateful. Like I sometimes feel badly for God that we're only going to God with our litany of yeah. like woes and you know all of the poor me and please make this happen. And but I think God wants us to be in relationship with God. So we should also be saying, God, thank you so much for this amazing thing that happened to my friend or Mm. thank you for meaningful work. Thank you for a loving community, whatever it is. And so I I try very hard to always bring the good grace to God (laughs) and and the thanks to God. The other thing I try to do is pray for people I have not yet met. Mm. My work has me traveling quite a bit. And so if I am taking a trip, I will begin that day praying for the people I will meet for the first time Mm -hmm. on that trip. And I've also for years, even when my children were little, prayed for their life partners, Mm -hmm. the people that they will fall in love with and commit to, Mm -hmm. not even knowing if that will happen. Mm -hmm. But what it does is it predisposes me meet the stranger and feel a sense of care and compassion and welcome for them because I've already invested in meeting them and in praying for their well-being. That's been a very helpful way to Mm. be a person of faith. Are you saying that for you, being a disciple of Jesus is about having like this disposition of openness? Yes, That's beautiful. I mean, it's real spiritual practice to just be open to the other and to be attentive to the other and to be also the openness to like all the things that you have are gift to be grateful and to celebrate and have joy for and give God thanks for. And at the same time, in all this openness, (laughs) you're dealing with the horrors of poverty and injustice and confronting the realities of division and all the messiness of humanity. And still you remain faithful and hopeful and a woman of generosity and joy. So what is real for you about the messiness of gospel living? I think it is truly that everything belongs, that even the things that cause us tremendous heartache 
and suffering and agony can in time and in the right prayerful context be that for which we can express gratitude. Mm. It's very hard to get there, but but it it is possible. And sometimes it's only in time. One of the hardest things for me in my life was losing this incredibly close friend, Father Bob Boulogne. He died of glioblastoma and from diagnosis to death was just nine months. And I helped his brother care for him and accompanied him in his diagnosis and his dying. And I thought that losing him, losing this soulful friend was just going to shatter me. But in the context of our faith claim of eternal life, that love does not end with death, I am able five years later to really see grace in the way I was allowed to accompany him in his suffering and his dying and leave him in a kind of state where he was completely free and at peace Mm. and not in pain, almost looking forward in a kind of stance of curiosity about what eternal life would be like. Mm. So the hardest thing I experienced became this aperture of immense grace from God. And I still dream of him. I hear his voice. I'm still in relationship with him. I hear him say, remember to enjoy it, Carrie, in times of anxiety or, or nervousness on my part. I attribute all of that to faith. Truly, to to really believing what our faith attests, that eternal life is real and there's nothing generic about the afterlife and grace is all around us. Yeah, yeah. The mystery of our faith and the eternal mystery of love that transcends life and death, that's messy stuff indeed. <laughs> Yes, yes. I thank you so much for that story and for sharing so much today, Carrie, about how living with a spirit of generosity and openness, allowing abundance, embracing the mystery, being on a journey of transformation and inviting others into that, and not clinging to anything, but letting it all be gift. That is such a great example for us to reflect on, especially this time of year when we're tempted to think we need to have more. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you very much for coming on Messy Jesus Business. What would you like to say for our listeners about how they can support Catholic charities and be more generous people in general and support you in your work and mission? Well, of course, I would love anyone to support us in any way that they can support your local Catholic charities or support us at the national office. Uh, You can contribute, you can pray for us, you can encourage us in this work. You can volunteer at Mm. a, a local Catholic charity, or you can simply just ask the question, how can I be especially generous to others who need the lavish love and generosity of God in their lives right now. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Carrie. So good to be with you, Julia. 
Messy Jesus Business is produced and edited by Colin Wamskans. You can find us online at MessyJesusBusiness.com and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. If you like what you heard, please be sure to mention our podcast to your friends and followers. And we'd love to have your support via Patreon. From the bottom of our hearts and the middle of the mess, thank you. Messy Jesus Business is produced in partnership with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. You can learn more about our religious community and donate to our mission at www.fspa.org. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, and I'll catch up with you next time. Until then, peace and all good.